Welcome to the Trey Talk podcast. Trey Talk is a gathering at Trey Ministries in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where individuals share their stories for you to be inspired and encouraged. You can learn more about us at treyministries.org. If you're in the area, join us for a cup of coffee and a conversation before and after Trey Talk. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Eric Larson. I'm a general internist um, at Stanford Hospital. Um, I practiced here in town for about 20 years. I had an interest in biology before I went to medical school. I was a biology major, and uh, then I went to graduate school in biology and got a master's in pigment cell biology. I've always been very interested in evolution and science. Um, uh, from a Christian perspective, I'm a Lutheran. I would be a plain Jane Lutheran, really nothing particularly interesting about my uh, beliefs. Um, I'm someone who you know, has lived deeply professionally in the sciences all along and really has not um, found a lot of conflict maybe much of any conflict between you know, my professional life in science, my interest in science, and my faith. It's just, it's not been something that has banged heads for me um, whatsoever. Um, a lot of what I do now is uh, with genetics, um, and uh, the genetics of drug response is a particular area of, of interest for me now, and we're, we're publishing papers and doing a lot of work with the medical students and residents um, along those lines. Certainly, um, evolution of disease has been, been a big interest for me all along, and it's actually something that, as a physician, we take note of um, all the time. I mean, evolution is something that we see um, at work, not actively evolving, but how people got to a certain place um, through evolution. Um, we, we look at uh, the different diseases, how they're touched by evolution, both in a good way and a bad way. Um, we think about, we don't have much sickle cell disease in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, but we do have sickle cell disease in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And that's an interesting example of um, the evolution of a genetic disease in which people who get a double dose of the gene for sickle cell disease have bad troubles and, and they don't survive very well. Um, people with a half dose of the gene for sickle cell disease actually survive malaria um, much more effectively than those who do not have it. So in parts of the world that are affected by malaria, a gene for a disease can actually be selected for, in spite of the fact you know, that the people who have a double dose of the gene are going to do very poorly. And so that's, that's an example, uh, you know, kind of the classic example in medicine, how genes can do both good and bad things and, and uh, show us how evolution is at work um, in health and disease. Do you guys have any questions on any of that? Or that's just by way of introduction. All right. I'll let you go ahead. All right. Sure. Well, the, the two of us are still figuring out what we're doing here. So uh, I'm Dave O'Hara. Uh, I, I was kindly introduced as Dr. Dave O'Hara, but if you have any real trouble, you should go to him and not to me. I'm not the kind of doctor that does anybody any good. Uh, doctor of philosophy. So if you have philosophical problems, then maybe I can help. But other than that, no. I'm chair of the religion department at Augustana, and I teach uh, religion, philosophy, classical Greek, and, and ecology. Um, I'm also, my wife over here is uh, an Episcopal priest. Uh, we're both Episcopalians, uh, both practicing Christians. And I, I'm not sure that I experience any particular conflict between faith and science. Uh, I'm really interested in science. I grew up in a science-based community. Uh, my father was an IBM and NASA engineer. Um, he, sort of raised me in the sciences and is probably one of my main reasons for being interested in ecology as well. Part of my work as an environmental philosopher is studying fish and forests and the relationship between those two. Um, and uh, I'm really interested in the philosophy of religion with uh, the problems that come up when we think about religion uh, or when, uh, when we have conflicts within religions, conflicts between religions, uh, the questions that arise when uh, something like death and suffering comes about, uh, 
you know, if somebody does suffer from cancer, if somebody does lose a loved one, uh, how do we explain that sort of thing? Um, and, and along the way, I guess, uh, it, along the way of doing my graduate work, I started getting interested in the American pragmatists. So my, I wrote my dissertation on one of them, Charles Sanders Peirce, and studied a few of the others, like uh, Josiah Royce and uh, William James. And all of them were also interested in these questions. All of them, if you think about it, they, they all went to, uh, to college right around the time that uh, Darwin's Origin of Species was published. And imagine what that would be like to be in college when some world-changing book like that comes about. And all of them also grew up in, uh, in New England and lived in a place where, that had been deeply shaped by the Puritanism uh, that had led to um, separation from England, uh, from, you know, from many of the, the people who were the, the original colonists, original European colonists in New England. But even, even there, I don't know that I detect a whole lot of conflict between uh, religion and science with possibly one uh, big exception that seems to run across America, and that is when either one of them gets lifted out of its proper context, if you will, and winds up getting deployed for purposes other than religious or scientific. Uh, so, uh, for instance, I've often had students write on essays or, uh, or, even, or tell me, you know, religion's problematic because religion has caused so many wars. And I try to be patient with this sort of thing, but I usually ask with, or follow that up with the question, can you name one? Can you name one war that was caused by religion? I can't think of any offhand, offhand but I can think of a lot of wars that were bad and then were made worse when religion was deployed in the service of the political or economic interests that started the war. So I'm gonna stop there for right now and hope that that's enough to get some questions out of you because otherwise you're gonna get stuck with a philosophy lecture and those go on forever. So. <laughs> what, what can we tell you all? What, uh, what questions do you have for us? About what they just said or anything that came up uh, at your tables, too, while you were talking. Yeah, I think we're both interested in hearing what you came up with. Uh, would be a piece of technology, however simple it is, 
and that technology contained something which, when set loose, wound up having unintended consequences. You don't, you don't have to think of that technology as being exactly like our technologies. The, the important point is that for the ancient world, here's a bit of technology, something new, something that just doesn't occur without human intervention in nature. And then that changes things. And it could very well be that for the ancient Greeks, the thing that they were most aware of is that when you make a pithos, you're able to store olive oil longer. You're able to store grape juice longer. You store grape juice long enough, and sometimes you're going to get wine. If you store olive oil long enough, you're going to create an economy. And you didn't intend to make wine, you didn't intend to make an economy, but you made a box, and now you open the box, you open it up to the market, and you've got unintended consequences. You now have poverty. If you think about it, in the ancient prehistoric world, there was no such thing as poverty. Modern technology made poverty possible. Because if you don't have money, there is no such thing as poverty, right? So you look at these ancient stories, and those stories remind us that we make decisions about the devices that are going to, we think, make our lives easier. And it's always possible that those will be misused. So to, to, you, know, you move forward just a little bit. Think about Robert Oppenheimer, who worked on the Manhattan Project. We got together some of the most brilliant physicists in the world, secluded them in the mountains of New Mexico, and said, make a device that will destroy a city. And they did. What they were doing was following in the footsteps of uh, Francis Bacon. You know, we think of him as one of the authors of the scientific method. And Francis Bacon took Aristotelian notions that science means finding four causes to things, and he divided those up into separate, separate realms of inquiry. He said two of those causes, matter and energy, those are studied by the sciences. And the other two causes, the idea of a thing and the purpose of a thing, will relegate those to something like the humanities or to theology and will allow the two to progress separately. So you fast forward to the 1940s, and here's Robert Oppenheimer and all of these others who are working to build this bomb, and they build it. They do the very thing that they're trained to do. And you can find this uh, pretty easily. There's a, there's a clip of Oppenheimer speaking sometime afterwards, after the bombs had been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This, this pinnacle of human achievement that winds up incinerating almost instantly hundreds of thousands of human beings. And Oppenheimer is super sober, and he says, when I watched that bomb go off, I remembered the words from the Bhagavad Gita, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. So there's that moment where He's got this technology that has been really wonderful, that allows us to do things like nuclear medicine later on, but at the same time has been used for really terrible purposes. Was the technology good or bad? No. The technology just was what it was. But Oppenheimer, the physicist, found himself returning to the scriptures of Hinduism and saying, I need that story right now because the thing that I've done had an unintended consequence that I, did, I and the other physicists working with me didn't even consider. We are become death, the destroyer of worlds. And so, for me, <clears throat> it's at a much lower level, much more of a brass tax level. We do um, proactive genetic testing um, in my clinic for 55 um, genetic diseases that are uh, um, that have been vetted thoroughly by the American College of Medical Genetics. And so what that means basically is these are diseases that we can do something about. And the knowledge of, of having that gene is something that we're going to be able to act on for that patient or even probably more likely that patient's family. And so before you leap into doing this kind of work. You have to be uh, um, very organized and set up with the appropriate resources that are going to be available for people when, when we have positive tests come back. And so 
whenever you move forward any arm of science, you have to know that there, there's going to be a massive amount of preparation that's going to be needed. And even with that, there'll be unintended consequences. Um, and so you, you have to be ready to um, work on those as they arise. Are you talking about like the genetic counselors and yeah. like having like, yep. emotional support on top of the scientific findings that they yep. have? Exactly. And that you know, and that's a very, very simple example of the kind of things we're talking about moving, you know, with science moving forward. So on the one hand, you want to keep moving science forward because that's gonna improve life for everyone. But on the other hand, there's no question that it has to be done very carefully and in a stepwise fashion. Um, but there will be mistakes made. So that almost sounds like science now is returning to like pre-Aristotelian, like bringing those four forces back together. So you're not doing matter and energy on one hand and theology and or ideas and what was the fourth one? Ideas and purpose. purposes. Yeah. So they're not totally separated, studied by different fields, but trying to bring them into one place so that scientists are also thinking about the ethical, responsible, theological side. And right. in, in medicine, we talk about the biopsychosocial model for taking care of patients. And it's the same kind of idea. It's not, um, it's a little tighter, obviously. But yeah, you need to take a holistic approach to things and, and look at the downstream effects um, of your knowledge. I think on the whole, the money has for a long time, and to, to large degree, is still on matter and, matter and energy. But a lot of people are, in fact, coming around to realizing that there's this really old principle, love your neighbor as yourself, that is the very thing that drove us into doing the medicine in the first place. And that even if the short-term gains come from focus on the matter and the energy, in the long run, if we don't think about loving our neighbors as ourselves, what was the point of doing the medicine in the first place? Well, I answered it because it was money. That, that's the thing, that money is what drives medical research? Maybe in some topics, yeah. Rather than love your neighbor. So Martin Luther and his small catechism has a really nice set of commentaries on the Ten Commandments. Again, the Ten Commandments can look like old mythology, and you can wonder what exactly the relevance of some of those are for today. I think for a lot of people, the first three in particular seem a little bit odd. One of the things that Luther says is that each one of those commandments, even though a lot of them are phrased as thou shalt not, have both a thou shalt not and a thou shalt. And one of the, those commandments is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. He says there's a positive side to that. If there's something that you shouldn't do, if you shouldn't lie, don't, don't, you know, don't tell false stories about somebody, the positive thing that you should do is you should put the best instruction on what other people do. So yeah, I do think that it's probably the case that we always have mixed motives. And it, it's very often the case that um, pharmaceutical companies, med tech companies, uh, large hospitals, especially anyone that's, that really is running a for-profit operation or something that's akin to a for-profit operation, is going to have to be motivated to some degree by the bottom line, and perhaps often by the bottom line. But I think it's also always going to be the case, or nearly always going to be the case, that people are motivated by the bottom line, perhaps because they have a narrow view of what neighbor is. Uh, you know, for instance, if you think about the very the most the worst scoundrel who wants to gain the most money for him or herself, even that person is probably thinking about because I want to provide for my children, because I want to care for the people who are closest to me. And it might be that that that's a very constrained view of what a neighbor is, but I think that again speaking from a Lutheran perspective, that we can still look at that and say there's some mixed good in there too. And so what we're talking about when we talk about this shift in the practice of medicine is it is sort of like a, a shift of balances. Uh, it's not, I don't think it's ever the case that medicine just sort of abandoned caring about other people. What happened was around the time of Francis Bacon, we realized that 
forcing um, research scientists always to ask, what's the big picture, and what, it, what did God have in mind when God allowed this natural process to happen, slowed science down tremendously. So Bacon said, let's just put those in separate rooms, and we'll allow the, the physical sciences to advance on their own steam. And the good news there is that we got some really quick-moving science. So one of these questions here is about cancer. I'm a, I'm a cancer survivor. And when I was diagnosed with cancer, my oncologist said, well, I've got good news for you. You drew the historical long straw. Because if you had had this type of cancer 15 years ago, I would have told you, go home and drop a will. And now it's become one of the most curable forms of cancer that there is. So good news for you. And that's in part because we emphasized letting natural scientists do their research without having to ask the big question of what exactly did Jesus have in mind in allowing this to happen in the first place. But I think you're right, there are many influences where people want to make a quick buck, and thankfully Martin Screlly is in jail right now. Uh, there are those people who want to make a quick buck at the expense of other people's health, but there are also lots and lots of physicians, research physicians, research scientists, who are realizing it doesn't matter how much money I have if I haven't got love in my heart. Maybe that's just me as an idealist teaching at a Lutheran institution. You know, I don't know, maybe USD doesn't have enough Lutheran in them. And they're, they're, you, you would know better than I would. You know, I, I think that on the whole, um, most people aren't greedy enough to stay motivated to do what has to be done to do these type of jobs. I think that certainly there are bad apples everywhere. But on the whole, um, people are doing the right reasons. Are there, I'm aware that we're kind of up against what we originally said would be the ending of our time. Are there other questions lingering around, or does anyone really want to have the final word?
creationists would say, you know, how the how the world is has been created. I think most of my students, and some of you are my students, have heard me say this, but for the rest of you, I'll repeat this. Um, if you run into this question, if you find somebody who says, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that God could, you know, that there's a conflict, that there's a conflict between evolution and, and Christian faith, I would ask this question. Is God capable of creating through descent with modification? And if you say no, then my response is your God is too small and it's not the God that Christians worship. Because you said God is not capable. The God that Christians worship is capable. And if you say yes, God is capable of creating through descent with modification, then you have no problem with evolution. I think the bigger concern that I have is when we lose humility and we start to worship either our science or our theology. Either one can become an idol to us. And the biggest problem with idols is not having some statue in your home. The biggest problem with idols is that they wind up demanding human sacrifice. Idols will wind up demanding that we give up other people for their sake. And if you start to worship your theology too much, it might make you say, I don't really give a damn about those people over there. And if you wind up worshiping your science too much, as I think many people do when they think that technology will save us from all human ills, for instance, you might just look at the people who, who cherish their faith as being troglodytes, not worth spending any time with. The Stoic philosopher Chrysippus lived about 2,000 years ago was not a particularly religious man, and he said so. But he said, even though I'm not a religious man, I choose to believe in a God. And the reason for that is, I'm pretty smart. And either I am the smartest one that I know, or there's someone smarter. And if I choose to believe that I am the smartest one out there, then I will wind up worshiping myself, and I'll never be able to learn, and everyone else will always be beneath me. But if I choose to believe that there is someone smarter than I, greater than I, then I will always be on the same level as everyone else, and I'll never be in danger of worshiping myself. I'll always be open to my neighbor, open to loving my neighbor and caring for my neighbor. So, in answer to your question, Doug, I'd say that the biggest problem is idolatry, regardless of what idol winds up fitting in that place. Anything else? Last words? Last questions? Um, I just have a problem with that illusion. I just, I don't believe that at all. I don't think the Genesis... I think that's a great question, uh, and thank you for being willing to say that out loud, because I think it's oftentimes, that's the sort of thing that people who have the conviction that you have wind up getting battered on all sides by people who say, how could you believe such a thing? So I applaud you for saying that out loud. Um, imagine somebody saying that a carpenter built that house and points to some building, and then you found out later that that carpenter used a hammer. Would you say... How dare you say that that carpenter built that house? I found out that he used a hammer. So similarly, might God use tools? In addition to that, notice that it says that God created all that is in six days. And of course, rested on the seventh. What do we mean by a day? In particular, what do we mean by a day before the sun is created? What do we mean by a day before there can be such a thing as night and day as we understand them, and the passage of time as we understand them? Well, I'll answer that like this. 
back in my day, we didn't really have this particular kind of conversation because the microphones weren't as good. Now, you see what I just did. I said back in my day. I did not refer to a 24-hour period there. I referred to an epoch, which we refer to as the 70s. <laughs> so the word day in Hebrew, yom, currently means a period of time measured from the sunset to the next sunset. But before the sun appears, before there can be that kind of measuring of time, it refers to an epoch. It refers to a period in which God and God alone acts. And I don't believe that anyone was there with a stopwatch measuring God, making sure that God didn't work over time. So how long did those days last? And what were the tools that God used? Just as we asked, what was the hammer or the saw that the carpenter used? I don't want to insist that you agree with me on this. I just want to throw these things out there because I think that they're worth considering, especially since the author of the book of Genesis did not understand uh, historiography the way that we understand historiography. That's a very old book. Our notion of historiography comes around passing through people like Herodotus and Thucydides and many others. And even Herodotus, who is considered to be sort of the grandfather of history, starts off by telling myths, what we think of as myths, stories of the gods. If you look at other histories from the time, roughly the time that the book of Genesis was written, those what we think of as Babylonian stories of creation, there are stories of people who lived for 10,000 years. Literally, they write down that a certain king lived for 10,000 years. What does that mean? Does, it, does that mean that that person lived for 10,000 times 365.25 days? No. They weren't measuring time the way that we're measuring time. In fact, most cultures haven't. You, do you know why we call, call seconds seconds? Because they're, they are hours that are minute hours, very small hours, but they're so minute, they're of the second degree. We didn't have seconds. Seconds didn't exist until somebody invented the clock with a second hand. If you'd spoken to somebody about seconds 500 years ago, they would not have known what you were talking about. 800 years ago, if you'd spoken to somebody about minutes, they would have thought you were talking about very small things. And if you'd spoken to them about hours, they would not have understood those in terms of 60 minutes, 3,600 seconds. They would have understood it as a period of time, and there's a certain number of them in the day, and the number of them that there are in the day would depend very much on the kind of timepiece that they used, usually the sun. And in our latitude, as you know, the amount of time as we measure it that the sun is in the sky changes throughout the year. In the ancient world, it didn't. You'd have the time when the sun is over there, the time when it's there, 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 and there. Same number of hours every day, regardless of how long those hours must be. So when you think about those, uh, that book of, uh, those opening chapters in the book of Genesis, bear this in mind, that we want to be careful about not making an idol of our notion of time as measured by our technology and imposing that upon the authors of the scriptures. I think to do so is bad hermeneutics. I think it's hard, you know, just by faith accept, you know, some things we'll never know, you know, until we meet our creator. I mean, just, you know, there's, you know, things, and I believe in creation. I believe in Genesis. I believe in Christianity wholeheartedly. But I do know that my myself, as humans, we are just, our minds are so small compared to our creator, that there's just some things we won't know until we're there. Mm -hmm. And by faith, that's what faith is all about, we accept what's there, what you can understand yourself. Some humility, like you're saying. Yeah. I really don't think I was a faith, but yeah. <laughs> I, I have a hard time accepting that. You yourself 
probably you have not in the last number of years been an eight. <laughs> <laughs> Unlikely. <laughs> but I think that's an important point that this conversation goes well with a good dose of humility. And uh, um, we do our best and we use the sciences as we're able and uh, there's some trust involved too that God's bigger than us. Mm -hmm. That's good. We want our God to be bigger than us, I think. Yeah. Well, I think we'll end there. Uh, you're welcome to hang around until Sandy kicks you out. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here tonight. And um, stay trapped. Welcome to the Trey Talk podcast. Trey Talk is a gathering at Trey Ministries in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where individuals share their stories for you to be inspired and encouraged. You can learn more about us at treyministries.org. If you're in the area, join us for a cup of coffee and a conversation before and after Trey Talk. Thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to be here and to share. And I will say, um, I think it was last fall when I saw Jody Schwan publish a story on SiouxFalls.business about Trey Ministries opening, I instantly, instantly felt God saying, Kira, this is for you. So I reached out to Sandy and we um, grabbed a seat together and I told her I would love to come and share my faith as you are, are building your ministry here in this building. So I was scheduled to speak last month, but unfortunately had the sickness that everybody else had. And I'm so glad to be with you here this morning. So I'm Kira Kimball. I am a Christ follower who is also the Chief Innovation Officer at Hawalt McDowell Insurance Martian McLennan Agency. And before I came to Trey Ministries this morning, I was over at Augustana um, doing a career panel. And it gave me great excitement to show up today, not in my typical professional garb, but wearing my Jesus Freak t-shirt <laughs> right along with my name badge. Because I think it's a really important message for all of us, not just college students, but for all of us to know that we can show up in the workplace as our work self, but also a lover of Christ. And that's a really important thing. So I'm going to share with you my faith journey, and then I'm going to talk with you about how I try to bring Christ in the workplace and what that looks like for me. So I originally grew up in Huron, South Dakota in the 70s in a very, very loving family with these two parents right here who are a huge part of my, my faith journey. And we went to church every Sunday. I was involved in children's choir. I went to church camp, vacation Bible school. I played my clarinet for special music. And I even did interpretive dance, which was really a blast. I was a church kid. I loved coming to church. And that was really who I was when I was growing up. And then I went to college. I went to college about four hours away from my hometown. Lots of kids do this. But sometimes when we go to college, we really do some exploration. We kind of try out our wings for ourselves. Um, we explore who we want to be. And all of those things are good and important things for college students to do. Before I came into the insurance industry, I spent 10 years in higher ed. So I have a background in student development. And this is good stuff. But really what happened to me starting in college is that I was moving away from my faith. I didn't have a church I attended. The friends that I had didn't attend church. It really wasn't part of their story. And as an 18 to 22-year-old, you're very well influenced by that peer group. And for me, that was the beginning 
of when I left Jesus and my relationship with him. I met a man who soon became my boyfriend, who was an academic scholar. He was Mr. Personality. He was a great leader on campus. He was just the cat's meow. And we fell in love. And we got married. And when we got married, the reality is, I know this now as a 48-year-old, which is a long time from being a 22-year-old, that our values really didn't line up. And that I fell in love with his energy, his persona, and who he was. He was fun to have. Um, he was, we had a lot of fun together. We shared a lot of interests personally together. But those values weren't clicking. And as a very impressionable young woman, it was very easy for me to drift away from my Christian values. And when he and I got married in 1992, we soon took off and left for graduate school. Graduate school wasn't four hours away. So instead of me being able to come home every few months to see my mom and dad and my sister and my grandparents and my cousins and my family who believed in Christ and facilitated that in my life, I was further away from them. I was in Indiana now going to graduate school. Matthias was in Indiana going to graduate school. And really what happened there is we were drifting further. I was drifting further from my faith. My husband at the time was an atheist. For all intents and purposes, I was an agnostic because I wasn't even thinking about Jesus. There were, there were years and years that went by in my early 20s and 30s where I didn't think about Jesus at all, that God wasn't a part of my life. And when I think about that now, having experienced the resurrection of myself in Jesus, it blows me away that I could go that long. And when I meet other people in the world and, and learn that they don't have Jesus, I just got to say something about it. But when we left, we continued to meet people who were different than us. And, and to some extent, that's exciting. And people from different countries who had different experiences. But God was not at the center of our marriage. He wasn't even at the periphery. We didn't talk about him. And instead, what I really learned about that time, when God is not in the center of your life, when that relationship with Jesus is absent from you, you become really me-centered and you become the center of your life. I became the center of my life. It was important for me to achieve, for me to accomplish, for me to be the best student, for me um, to be the one creating my opportunity. I became very selfish, very self-centered, and didn't think about other people. What do you think happens to a marriage when the two people married together become that? Complete disintegration. And that's what really happened. And when you have a marriage that isn't centered on faith, or a partnership that isn't centered on faith, what happened to me, and this is what I can really share with you, is that I started to get sick. And we left graduate school with our degrees, and uh, we went to Ohio, and started working, again, even further from home. My parents probably didn't see me more than once a year, maybe twice a year, for a good decade. They didn't hear from me either. There was a lot of time when my mom or dad left voicemails that went unreturned. Because again, I was so caught up in my own living that I didn't pay attention to those people who'd invested in me and loved me. So in Ohio, we, we had our graduate degrees. I was smart as the whippersnapper. I had two master's degrees from Purdue University. I graduated in the top of my class. I thought I was something else. Thought I was pretty unstoppable. So in Ohio, I was working for Ohio State. 
I had a pretty darn good job. My husband at that time was really struggling with keeping a job. And we started treating each other so poorly because of our stress and anxiety and no connection with each other that I started to deteriorate completely and utterly. This very strong, confident, willful young woman, um, I had trouble getting myself to work. I had trouble getting in front of my students to speak and to teach class because of this anxiety that was creeping into my life. And I tried to put on this strong facade because that's what you do to keep going. You try to put that on. And I did it, and I did it, and I did it. And there was one morning, I'm just not going to work. I'm not going to work. I can't go to work. And in that moment, I remember going to see my doctor because I was having great insomnia. And I went and saw, saw him thinking, you know, what's wrong with me? Is this a hormonal thing? What's happening? And he asked me a bunch of questions. Now, I want to tell you, I am trained as a counselor. That is my background. And this doctor asked me a bunch of questions, and he came to the conclusion, and he said, Kira, I believe you've got depression. I believe that you have anxiety. I couldn't believe this. So I buttoned down again and got up the next day and worked harder to get there and to be better and to do the things I needed to do. But the reality is that all came undone, completely came undone. I had to leave my job. I had to go on disability because of all of this brokenness. And I will invite you to remember that there was no Jesus in my life. There were no people speaking Jesus into my life no truth that was happening. And this is what I argue for college students who go off to college or young people who leave the roost, that it is so important to remember that support system that comes around you and the values that you learned and to protect yourself by finding others who share those values. So ultimately, in April 2002, completely broken in my marriage, completely broken as a human being, I called home. And all I said to my mom was, I'm sick. I'm sick. And pretty much in that instance, my parents packed up, and they got in their car, and they drove to get me in Indiana. And I will remember that ride home. My anxiety was so high that my mom had to climb in the back seat with me because I was having a huge panic attack that I think she was afraid I was going to jump out of the car. So in, in that brokenness, this is really where my journey began. So I made it to South Dakota, and I lived with my parents. And at this point, I'm 32 years old for a good couple years. My ex-husband came to live with us. We decided we were going to try again. You, you can see I, I'm, I'm kind of a stubborn person, and this continues. Um, but I, I really wanted to make things work, and Matthias wanted to make things work. But ultimately, if we fast forward two years, so you don't have to hear that pain and suffering, on Halloween of 2005, I packed up my belongings and drove over to my parents' house here in Sioux Falls and said, I'm leaving my marriage. This is it. And so in that time, this is where my parents started to minister me. And I think that as Christians, we often think we are going to just minister to those people we don't know. That's where God is calling us. But the reality is our loved ones need ministering. Those that you wake up with, um, those who you see on holidays, um, th those people, brothers and sisters that you grew up with, they need our ministering just as much as the other person who we don't know. So in that time, my depression and anxiety were really high. I was on five different medications. I wasn't sleeping at all through the night. My mother had to basically get me up out of my fog and say, honey, we're going to go walk around the block. You can do this. My huge successes were, would be when I would drive my car to the parking lot of Hy-Vee and get out of my car 
and then go into the entryway at High V. That's all I could handle. I would pop back into my car and say, I did it. I got out of my car, I went into High V, and I came back. Those were the successes and how broken I was that I, I was celebrating those. So through this time, I'm so thankful for my parents because this is where they began to minister to me in really beautiful ways. My dad at the time was in a Bible study. So around the dinner table, he would softly talk about his study and what he was preparing for, what he was reading, and just share. My mom is an avid book reader and is in probably five book clubs. I don't know. You're in a lot of book clubs. And she shared with me some books that she was reading, one of them being A New Kind of Christian and one of them being A Purpose Driven Life. So A New Kind of Christian really resonated with me. And my mom know, knew this about me because I was that fringy kid. You know, I was that kid who, when I went off to college uh, and came back, they, my parents probably were looking at me saying, oh, Lord, what is she wearing? That's who I was. So sharing that kind of book about a new kind of Christian really empowered me to know, okay, there's not just one pathway to loving Jesus and what that looks like. So I started reading those books. We started having those conversations together. And all the while, I can tell you that my parents were reaching out to their support group and talking with them about the struggles of where they were. So people were ministering to them along the way. So in these conversations, of course, I'm not working. I'm full-blown depression. My sadness is, when I think about this, friends, the depths of my sorrow, I can't even articulate. I mean, I would wail and lament I, I mean, I can't even express it. it. It was just so overpowering, the deep sadness I had, and the feeling that my life is over at 34, 35 years old. I've got nothing to live for. It was, it, it's just insane for me to think about how destitute I was in my brokenness. And as my parents continue to ministry, minister to me, I started having a level of openness, but where that level of openness basically came from is being on my hands and knees, and that I need help. My parents have seen what the Lord can do in their lives. I remember growing up with the Lord. I'm going to have this level of openness to do this. So then in March, I don't know what it was, 2008, after weeks of thinking about it, I went to church. Now, in going to church, I felt completely worthless. I didn't have a right to be in church. I wasn't good enough. People who go to church are not me, have not done the things that I've done, have not fallen as far from the, the foot of the cross as I had done. I was scared to death to go to church. Now I run to church. Now I'm excited to worship. It's such different thinking. Thank you, Jesus. So in, in going to church, I remember sitting, I was sitting by my father. And it happened to be Communion Sunday. When you haven't been to church for 20 years, which was about my story, except for coming at Christmas and coming at Easter, because that's what you do when you go home, Communion was before me. I was completely scared to death and I leaned over to my dad dad it's communion and he leaned back to me you picked a good day to start coming back to church <laughs> so that was really powerful to be there um, when communion was being offered and for me to start thinking differently about, yeah, I can be forgiven. I can be forgiven from turning my back to God. I can be forgiven from turning my back on my parents who invested so much in me. I can be forgiven for the sins that I committed. And it was a journey. After that, you know, I didn't show up at church all the time, but I started coming. 
I started paying attention. I started reading more. I started asking more questions. I started giving myself permission to move into this new space. And essentially what happened to me is about a year and a half later, I decided I was going to be a member. And I was going to be a Christ follower. And how God has changed my heart from that self-entitled, self-centered, achieving-oriented, it's all about me, it's all about my plan, I'm so angry that my life hasn't worked out, it is completely over, God has written a new story on my heart, and he continues to do that. So through becoming a member of the church, I got involved in that Bible study that my father took and did Bible study for three years, and there were great people, about a dozen folks who poured into me and supported my growth and development. Again, this is about community. This is not, when, when people say, and I was one of these young people, yeah, uh, you know, I've, I've got this faith. It's between me and Jesus. It's not the story, right, friends? We're the church together. We need each other. And that's really a lot about what I learned. So I started getting involved. I went on a mission trip to Bolivia, which was absolutely amazing. And that trip in and of itself changed my whole definition of what joy is and what wealth is. Completely changed. That experience along with my Bible study and people pouring into me changed who I wanted to show up as in the world. That was really exciting for me. And this is what the power of a relationship with Jesus can do for us. We know that he can take complete and other brokenness, e.g. Kira Kimball, and do something amazing with that and change the trajectory of one's life. Change the trajectory about how I place value on who I am as a person, as a child of the one true king. And I'm so thankful for that. So in, in that ministry through the mission, I came back and, and I started leading some ministries, which was pretty exciting for me. I led um, our banquet ministry. Um, I led some feeding uh, projects and hunger projects. And, and this was all God helping me live into who he wanted me to be. And that's what I've really learned through this journey that I continue to learn is that if we align with God and we align with what we know he wants for us in terms of the gifts of the spirit that we talk about in Galatians, great things are going to happen. And this is what I proclaim today about returning to my Christian faith and having been there for 10 years, God will heal all things and do beautiful work. So let me tell you the rest of the story. Because the story that I told you is on these three pieces of paper. And I presented this, I think it's been about 10 years ago, um, the first time I did this testimony in a, in a church parking lot. Um, filled with lots of anxiety about getting up and telling my story for the first time. I have told my story, and this is something that I get incredibly excited to do. I got a little emotional today because I'm really telling it, and I don't tell all of those details, but I'd like to kind of switch the page and tell you a little bit about how God has worked on me since that time. And when I started back in the workforce again, which took some time, I spent five years in my parents' home, um, from 35 to 40 years old, and I'm so grateful for that and their unconditional love. I mean, when we think about um, the, the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke, I am that prodigal daughter, where the, the, the two sons, basically, the, the one son came to the father and said, Dad, I want my inheritance now, which is basically like saying, you know, Dad, you could be dead, and, and that's fine. I want my inheritance now. And he took off with that inheritance, and he squandered it far away from home. Sound familiar? He squandered it, and he had to come back home. Sound familiar? And he went to work um, in, in, in the pigs area. And his father heard about this. And the son said, I am so broken, so lost, I'm going back home. I have no choice. Again, sound familiar? And when that young man came to his father 
and in my instance, father and mother, and father with a capital F, he said, I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your forgiveness. And what that father did was throw the biggest welcoming party, got the biggest fatted calf, the biggest ring, the most wonderful robe, and said, thank you that you are back. And that is what I celebrate, what I proclaim, that it wasn't just my parents, but this is what we get from our relationship with Jesus, that there is nothing that we can do that takes us too far from him, nothing that we can do. So I'm now at Holt McDowell Insurance, Martian McClendon Agency. I've been there since 2010, and I have had wonderful opportunities to share my faith. It's something that I'm committed to. My colleagues know this about me. So the first time I had an opportunity to really share it from a healthy place, which is, thank you again, that's such a good feeling, is um, I was with a, with a new friend who I worked with, and we were getting to know each other. And she said to me, you know, Kira, I, I want to understand how you do it. Where does all this happiness come from? And where does all this, like, ease and conflict that you tend to maneuver and this peace? And I remember sitting there with her thinking to myself, this is it. This is my opportunity to testify. I've never really had this opportunity before. And that was when I said, I have to be honest with you. There's no magic bullet for me. This is my relationship with Jesus. And basically, I told her the story that I told you, and I told her the story of how God changed my heart. And it was so wonderful to say, you know, sometimes I get this crazy feeling of peace, even when I want to be angry. And, you know, I just want to be pissy, and it's like, oh, sorry, Kira, joy's coming your way. And I am so thankful for that. And I hope you have that feeling as well, that sometimes God just blasts you with that. And this is how you're going to show up. So my friend and I continue to have those conversations. And even though it's 10 years later, I still softly work on her. In terms of my other colleagues, I am so fortunate to have people come into my office and say, I'm having a really difficult time at home. My finances are crazy. I have three children. This is just really hard. And I have said to that person, can I pray with you right now? This is a blessing to be able to do in the workplace. And I think more of us um, need to lean on God to be courageous to do that work. I have talked with young women um, in, in our office who grew up without having any faith. And they asked me the same thing. I've invited them to worship with me and how they can get involved. And while people don't instantly say yes, it is such an honor to continue having those conversations with them and try to encourage their spirit. When I enter a conference room for meetings, and I have lots of them, my friend Tracy can attest, she does as well, I try to find a place for Jesus at the conference room. It is so important for the world of work to have a tempered way at working with employees and hard de decisions and Jesus is the one who softens that for me and reminds me whose I am and who I ultimately report to. I love my boss to death, but I'm showing up, and I want to remember, and I fall short of this. I definitely fall short of this, but I'm showing up to remember I'm using the talents that God has given me to glorify God. God's my CEO. That's how I really want to show up in the workplace. So I think I try to normalize um, that this is who I am. I don't hide my faith. I don't hide my Christianity. I talk about it with people. You know, in terms of HR, there are certainly legal things that we can't do in an HR situation, but I'm kind of crafty, and I build my pipeline out of that HR situation. So when I can talk with potential employees, I like to ask them, you know, well, well tell me what your personal life looks like if you want to share. Let me tell you a few things about me, and being a Christ follower is always one of them. And I can tell you, more than not, if that person becomes an employee, they are so encouraged that they found someone else who believes this work and is trying to build the kingdom together. I'm going to look at my notes because the first time I did this, I typed them out, but I really felt um, it's really hard to, to type out a 20-year story as far as that goes. I work in a sales organization, and in a sales organization, there are lofty goals, 
there is very fast-paced, um, there's egos that show up, and part of the role that I hope I play is softening that place and letting people know that you can be in sales and be a Christ follower, that there's different ways of doing business and showing up, and I hope that I'm making a difference. Am I making any difference, Tracy? You make a difference, too. So I just, I thank God that at any moment he can make all things new. That's the biggest story for me. And if I fall flat again, he's there. He can do this again. And when my partner and I talk about faith, you know, he, he's in a men's group and, and does some good study with folks, which I'm so, so grateful of. But one of the things we talk about is small prayers. And what, what he often says to me is, oh, God doesn't need this one. You know, this is just too small. This is too small for God. And my whole thing is our God is great enough that he can walk backwards, rub his stomach, rub his head, say the alphabet, and answer one billion other prayers at the exact same time. That's how powerful our God is. So with that, I am going to share something with you. Um, and my hunch is several of you have heard this. But I had some neat moments on Sunday when I was reflecting how I wanted to talk about with you and not knowing what the audience would for sure be because it's a voluntary event, right? But this is something I think we all can relate to. And God gave me some really good confirmation because as I wrote these words out, when I went to worship Sunday night at a church I don't typically worship at, the closing song was this exact song. And then when I was driving in this morning being really giddy about how excited I was, the song was on again. So I, I, I want to give you some words. And many of you have probably heard of Corey Asbury's Reckless Love Song through Bethel Music. And I don't know if you had an opportunity to see Bethel when they were here a couple of months ago. It was amazing. But this is something that resonates me, resonates with me. And, and when I worship in, in the car or in my kitchen, which is the, the high likelihood those things are going to happen, this is something that's important. And I don't know where any of you are really with your journey, but I know even as Christ followers, we can fall off the game and that it doesn't become the center of our lives. And we may not do things that we're proud of, even as Christ followers. And I want to encourage you with um, this refrain. There's no shadow you won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. Lie you won't tear down coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming never-ending, reckless love of God. Thank you, friends, for being here today and letting you share the power of, of a relationship with Christ in my life and how he continues to work on me.